Hello, listener. Before the podcast starts, I feel obligated to give you a bit of a prologue for reasons you will soon understand. You will notice inconsistencies with the sound. Unfortunately, I had technical difficulties that were discovered too late. The first six episodes that I recorded have random moments where my sound and video cut out. Thankfully, the sound of my guest was rarely affected. I have taken the time to tediously edit each little section in attempts to salvage the episode and even had to re-record myself saying certain words or phrases, as you will notice. I apologize for the less than smooth experience. I have learned from my mistakes and future episodes should not suffer the same fate. Now, regarding the context in this episode, there will be some phrases that I will use that you are unlikely to understand. You will hear things like morality egg game, dinner plate to pinpoint, personality Venn diagram, and maybe others. These are frameworks of thought that are meant to provide a foundation for discussing difficult concepts relating to communication and life. My initial idea with this podcast was to have an off-the-record discussion with a guest describing the concepts to them and then having a standard podcast interview afterwards. The intention was to create a conversation that had a unique foundation to potentially build highly unique conversations on top of. This didn't turn out the way I wanted it to for many reasons, but this episode was my first and only attempt at that strategy. My second episode is a more standard podcast approach, and I attempt to interweave some of my ideas. After much deliberation and the always wise insight from my fiance, I have decided I would prefer to stress test my thought frameworks. I want to figure out if they can be understood, improved, or replaced. The third to six episodes that I recorded are in that style and are likely to continue that way for at least a handful more, possibly indefinitely. I am not describing my frameworks in this episode, so if you want to understand them better, you may need to listen to a later episode. I apologize for that inconvenience, and thank you for your patience and understanding. Let us begin. You're going to try to convince me to save the world. Some of our ideas are a bit ambitious. I know how hard this is for you to hear. Government should be afraid of their people. you got the makings of greatness in you. What we do in life echoes in eternity. If you could see your whole life from start to finish. We would be given a choice to betray our chosen destinies. I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. Love is the one thing that transcends dimensions of time and space. Are you watching closely? Welcome, wonderful, beautiful listener to the Talking About Talking podcast. Today, I am joined by Gina Cook. She is a longtime, 31 years member of Toastmasters. She was once on the International Board of Directors. She managed the IT department of the CRA for six years, worked for them for 15, and has spent her entire life working in IT. So with Gina's experience with Toastmasters and so much time spent in IT, I feel like it's safe to say, Gina, that you have a lot of experience communicating with people, but you have a lot of experience communicating with computers as well. Absolutely. That's very true, Trevor. And the two are quite different because computers don't have any emotions. They don't care how you say the words. They just listen for the words and do whatever you tell it to do. 
exactly what you tell it to do. Yes, very much exactly. Not much for sarcasm. True. <laughs> First of all, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Super excited to do this. Very happy to have you as my very first guest. Thank you. Glad to be here. I would like to start off with, and, and I'm asking it probably out of little bit of selfishness because I really, really want to know. Among these titles and credentials we discussed, I feel like I might have been missing something. Does it mean anything to you if I say Baron or Baroness? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Can you elaborate on that? Absolutely. Uh, one of the other organizations that I belong to is called the SCA or the Society for Creative Anachronism. And in this society, we try to educate ourselves and educate others on how things were done in the well, pre-17th century. So before the 1600s, most of the time it's between 600 and 1600. So we look at the history, we educate ourselves on how things were done and try to recreate those. And I have been fortunate enough to achieve the title of Baroness which means that although I have no land to worry about, I can wear a coronet around my head. And that means that others in my presence when I am in full regalia would actually bow in front of me, it's including my husband. <laughs> okay. Which is like the best part. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine it is. What, what is, a, how did you say that? Coronet? A coronet, like a crown. Oh, okay. But it's, it's very specific for the title. Every title has their own design. So the Baroness would have six points with uh, a pearl of some sort on top of each of those points. And that way across the, the world that has all of these organizations that we can all see the same title by what they're wearing on their head. Okay. So if it's not designed in that specific way, then it would not be a coronet. For that position. For that position. Right. Okay. Back to Toastmasters. What is Toastmasters? Toastmasters is an international educational organization. It is founded in out of it was founded out of California, is currently headquartered now in Denver, Colorado. But the idea is that people get together in a safe and friendly environment and we help each other improve both our communication skills and our leadership skills in a workshop type environment. And the idea is that we're constantly giving feedback on what things worked really well for the individual and what they might want to change and how they could change it to make themselves better in both in both communication and in leadership. Okay. Can you describe to me what a Toastmaster does? What's a day in the life of a Toastmaster in their role? What do they physically do? Who do they communicate with? What are their given tasks? Well, if we're only going to stay within the, say, two hours of a meeting or an hour of a meeting, what would happen is that when they join the meeting, we would all, of course, give our pleasantries and do a little bit of social socializing, uh, just the same way that we did when before we started the session. And then what would happen is that before that came, came through, the person who is going to be chairing the meeting, and we refer to that person as the Toastmaster of the day, they would ensure that they contacted everyone who has a role on the agenda to A, confirm that they're doing the role and B, get any further information from them that they would need to be able to introduce them to the audience. What happens is that at each meeting, we usually have someone who has prepared a presentation, usually a five to seven minute speech. 
and the Toastmaster would get the title of the speech and a short introduction, say a sentence or two, to be able to set up the audience for the speaker to come on and present. And this allows the speaker to have a running start and the audience may be a little warmed up for them so that when they get up to start speaking on whatever topic they choose to speak on, that the audience is a little bit more receptive and interested in the topic already. Okay, so is it always a speech regarding Toastmasters? It's very rarely a speech regarding Toastmasters, Trevor. A lot of times it is a speech that is of interest to the individual. What I have seen many times is speeches about their family or funny things that their children are doing, things that they can talk more easily about. Other topics I've seen are things that they've researched. They might have always wanted to find out about family trees. And so they've researched the topic and now have information that they'd like to share with the members. Keeping in mind, it's only five to seven minutes that they're going to be speaking. So there's not a lot that you can talk about in that short amount of time. It's not like a workshop or a university course. They're giving some very basic information, but hopefully it is something that is of interest to the members as well. They then get feedback and critiqued on their ability to speak. Exactly. And we have a whole evaluation team that does that. First is the speech evaluator, who is specifically assigned to give feedback to the speaker. That speech evaluator has two to three minutes to be able to present their ideas back to the speaker, but also for the audience to be able to pay attention and maybe learn something about themselves in that same idea. So this, the evaluator talks about what things that the speaker has done well, what areas that they are really strong at, perhaps their projection, perhaps their articulation, perhaps their body gestures, then an area or two that could use some additional changes or work. Perhaps they're not projecting far enough so people had a hard time hearing them. But the idea is to be able to give them the feedback, to be able to say, this is the behavior that I witnessed, that I saw. And it's all coming from you as an individual. As an evaluator, I couldn't say that we felt this because I don't know what everyone else was thinking. I only know what I was feeling. So to be able to give the feedback from a personal opinion and then to be able to say why I thought that the behavior or the technique needed changing, and then to be able to make sure that we start on something positive, give an idea for growth, and always end on something positive, because it makes it much easier to eat that sandwich when there's something positive at the end. Yes, I've heard that before, the uh, compliment, critique, compliment sandwich. Exactly. The speech analyzer, is that what you said? Evaluator. Speech Speech evaluator, excuse me. What would you say is the most common thing that the speech evaluator gives the speaker to correct or improve? It really is different from person to person because we've got people that join Toastmasters because they need to improve their English or even just their confidence in speaking out in front of a group, period. And I've seen lots of that. And it goes to the full gambit of people that are wanting to become professional speakers And they are using Toastmasters as a place to practice and improve their own skills so that when they get up on that big stage, they sound even better. These people that have to speak, or if we have a listener that is going to speak somewhere, 
Is there a list of aspects that are primary categories that uh, one might be able to try and self-diagnose? There's different things. When we talk about being able to hear or get the message, that there are different parts of it. We talk about the organization of the presentation first, the wording, how it was put together. But we know that the words are only worth about 7% of the message. So then we need how we heard it. So we're talking about voice, the inflection, the variety in your voice. If you're monotone the entire time, or if you've got some interesting way of being able to project your voice, you've got your whole body language that it needs to be in in concert with the words and with your voice so that if you're talking about something really big that your gestures are also saying something big as opposed to i feel really happy to be here today trevor (laughs) everything has to match up and give the same message for that message to be totally understood and appreciated by the listener so we try to look at all of those aspects what would you suggest would be a good place for someone to start if they wanted to improve their speaking ability? If someone's not going to check out Toastmasters, if someone just on their own wants to improve their speaking abilities, what kind of direction would you give them as a starting point? Check it out, of course. Well, I think that there's a lot of interesting videos right now that are on the YouTube or out on the web elsewhere, even through the Toastmasters International website that are worth taking a look at and seeing if this is the direction that you want to go. You have to decide, is it improving your presentation on how you're presenting yourself? Is it improving just the use of the English language or whatever language that you are speaking that you want to improve on? And perhaps in that direction, it might be taking a look at English courses or or language courses, period, to be able to improve yourself there or perhaps some sort of program that gives you new words to practice each day? Or is it that you're taking a look at being a professional speaker and therefore you have the basics down pat, but what is it that you really need to improve upon? And that's the one way of taking a look at it. Many of the professional speakers that go out there that give seminars often refer people back to Toastmasters to be able to improve themselves and their presentation skills. And if there are people that have, um, let's say, particularly poor speaking abilities, have you personally witnessed someone like that developing into an excellent speaker? And I only ask this because I'm sure that there very well could be someone listening that thinks, I wish I didn't have that social anxiety or whatever it is. And they just think, oh, there's no way I'm a lost cause too far gone. Absolutely. I have actually, one of the first clubs that I joined, we had a member that when they first got up to try to speak, they couldn't even say their own name in front of 30 people. Wow. They were that nervous. And each week we gave them the encouragement that they needed so that each week they gave a little bit more. They talked a little bit better. And I think after five years, I remember speaking with this individual that her plan had been to go into Toastmasters because she wanted to go into schools and do educational talks to children. Well, she's doing that now. (laughs) 
It took her about five and a half years or so to be able to get through the blocks, those, those mental roadblocks that she had, to be able to feel confident enough in herself to be able to present her ideas and what she was thinking. You mentioned different programs. Speaking of programming and language, what coding languages do you know? <laughs> I am very old school, Trevor. I programmed in COBOL, PL1, and Assembler. COBOL, COBOL is very old. It, it was one of the, I was going to say one of the first, but it was the first business language. It actually stands for Common Business Oriented Language. How would you describe the experience of coding to someone that knows truly little about computers? The idea of coding in a program is that you are telling the computer exactly step-by-step step what to do. So it would be the same idea as trying to tell someone how to walk, is that you could put one foot in front of the other, but it doesn't help if you don't lift the foot up, bend at the knee, bend at the ankle, move it forward. And you have to be very explicit and tell the computer exactly what to do. Because what happens, the computer will do exactly what you tell it. And sometimes we don't tell it enough and therefore the program doesn't work. What is a, a tool when I say to tool, I mean an aspect of communication uh, that people take for granted or do not utilize enough? I think that when I think about that question, Trevor, I think about electronic communication because I think a lot of people take for granted that if I send you an email, you know exactly the emotional thoughts that I have while writing this email. So if I say I'm not happy, you can read that and know exactly what I'm thinking. And the problem is that we don't. Again, if I go back to the idea that words are only worth about 7% of the message, when it comes to electronic communication, we're not getting the whole message. And I think a lot of people are assuming we do. So we've got text, we've got emails, and, and, and messenger, any other communication that is strictly text-based, that we're assuming people understand what we're trying to say. And most of us have a grasp, but we don't necessarily understand the whole picture. Right. And that ties into what we had discussed the first time about emotion, enunciation, inflection, body language, gestures, etc., with that, how would you recommend people better understand those kinds of things through text conversation? Well, I know that there's a lot of emojis that are somewhat helpful. I haven't learned even 10% of what's out there. I know the heart. <laughs> Smiley face, that's about it. But I know that especially when the younger generation is very uh, comfortable with the text base and they're trying to talk to someone who doesn't know what the LOL actually stands for. When I first saw that, I thought lots of love. Okay. That, oh, that makes sense. But exactly. I, I learned that the hard way, Trevor. <laughs> I feel like I need that story. But there's, there's a lot of things that ge generation by generation, things change. And the way that we see things, because our values are different at each generation, the views and the message may become very different depending on who you're talking to. And even, and even what country the person is from may be very different, even at the same generation level. Right. I was showing someone around my gym and I was talking to them about the bathrooms and 
he was very clearly not a native English speaker. And he had to confirm through conversation, he was saying, so when you say bathroom, you mean a toilet, right? And I've been spending some time learning German and through that and paying attention to other languages and stuff, I realized that English is dumb that we call everything bathroom and washroom because we're really looking for a place to go pee or poo. And whether it is that we think it's just gauche that we speak like that. I mean, oh my God, you're saying the word toilet. Yeah, Gosh. taboo. I know that when I went to Australia and the first thing we did when we arrived at our friend's house, okay, I need to use the washroom. And he looked at me like, why are you needing to take a shower? <laughs> do you want, not want to just use the toilet instead? <laughs> and I thought, Okay, I did not do my research properly here. <laughs> questions for programming. Uh, so when programming, you are communicating instructions to a computer, as you explained. If you could have written a program that you could drop into the brain of the people you worked with that would execute a function as smoothly as a computer does when you give it clean code, what program would you have written? Hmm. I had some wonderful employees first, so I, I wouldn't need too much of the programming done. But I think that if I could drop a program into everybody's brain to get them. So to, we're talking everyone in the world. Everybody. Never mind just the programmers. Okay. Everybody. I would look for something that could convey compassion and empathy, because I think that a lot of times when we're hearing something or reading something that we jump to conclusions and look for the negative as much as possible. And I think that if we were to able to take that step back and look for the pause or, or perhaps a reason why somebody was, was doing what they are doing, whether it is the person that just cut you off in traffic to say, wow, they must be in a big rush or something, you know, perhaps the person that's going 20 miles an hour slower in in the lane is holding a cake for their grandmother. I mean, think about it in positive terms instead of always the negative. And that's something I'd love to see you know, put in worldwide. <laughs> Sounds a little bit like being more mindful, yeah, right? It would be. It's true. Yeah. When the, it's so interesting that you talked about empathy and compassion, because those are such complicated things to discuss in general conversationally. I can only imagine they would be exceptionally complicated to program. And it itself is the same as what is discussed when people talk about artificial intelligence, where the one thing that is going to be primarily keeping artificial intelligence from being considered alive would be empathy and compassion. Do you think everyone should take time to learn a little bit of code? That is a really interesting question. And I was thinking about that not too long ago. If we could learn, if everyone could learn a little bit about everything, I think that we would be in a much better place just so that we have a better understanding of perhaps what the other person is doing. I mean, how many times have we perhaps taken our vehicle into the, the mechanic and they may talk to us and tell us exactly what was wrong. If you had a basic understanding of perhaps how the machine was supposed to work so that when you brought it in, you could say, okay, well, it's making this noise. I think it possibly is over here. I took the lid off. I looked, I couldn't see anything. Perhaps you might be able to find the problem. Ties into the, 
the idea that when it comes to communication, communication is 50-50, right? It's half the job is the receiver and half the job is the sender of the thought. And what you're talking about is developing more understanding. What you're describing sounds like a world that just involves greater efficiency everywhere, right? Does that, is that fair? If we could have that in every aspect of our lives, I think that, that people would appreciate each other much better. Right. Because, because I personally find that, so I being a personal trainer, I've spent a ton of time trying to educate myself on the human body and movement, et cetera, et cetera, and develop my ability to control my own. And I have found when going to a massage therapist, when going to a chiropractor, when I have a pain or a problem, I can communicate, oh, like I, I've gone to my chiropractor and said, my, my T1 is out and they go, oh, okay. And they just feel it for a second and go, yep, you're right. It is out. And just being able to have that communication allows them to do their job better, more efficiently. That is kind of what I'm trying to emphasize with the point you're making is that some people might hear you say, everyone should learn a little bit about every little thing. And then people might think, no, I don't want to do that. Meanwhile, every little bit would help them more than anything else. Yes. And I think that it, it for me, out of the things that I have learned about, and I could say, oh man, I, I've, I see what they're doing. I don't want to do that. It's way too much, much stronger appreciation for the people that actually have to do that work. And that's what makes a big difference. Something that really comes to mind for me when you say that is my fiance's work as a hairstylist. What she has to go through with communicating with women about their hair is just <laughs> mind boggling to me as a man living in a man like man environment, spending time with men mostly. And yes. that that's just craziness. We want to talk about talking holy hair salons. Uh, yes. And I can, I, I totally appreciate that. And because of COVID, I've been cutting my own hair and it's like, <laughs> oh, I so want to go to a salon and get it cut, but I haven't got the guts yet. <laughs> well, you've done pretty well so far. I would not have guessed, honestly. Uh, well, thank you so much. I <laughs> appreciate that. So uh, being a personal trainer, there's this concept of exercising regularly, making healthy eating decisions, sleeping more, et cetera, basically making healthier decisions. The concept is that by doing so, all aspects of your life are going to improve. And that concept is very, very simple, but execution is hard for a multitude of reasons, first of all. And it's hard to avoid hurting, hurting people's feelings or challenging their self-identity and just layers, right? And through my life, I'm going to be continue trying to refine my ability to communicate this very simple concept, right? Because of my career choice. What is something that you found in your work that was a fundamental concept, but it's difficult to communicate it in a way that people will adapt efficiently? Probably something that goes across more than just, and that is take responsibility for what you've decided you're going to do and finish it. Do the work, follow through with yourself, but finish the work that you've said you're going to do. And I think that's probably a big thing. And that could be with any job, basically. Uh, when, and when you're talking about the you know, sleeping better, eating better, taking better care of yourself through exercise. And that's something that I, I 
started really focusing on basically about a year and a half ago when I retired <laughs> because because I could. And the fact that just before I retired, I had the hip replaced. So yay, I could move again. <laughs> that was awesome. Awesome. I'm super happy to hear that. But I could say that you know, every day we're doing lots of fresh vegetables, lots of, of fresh food. Nice. Which takes time to prepare. And had full time, I wouldn't have been able to do that life choice at that point, because I just didn't have the time in the evenings to be able to prepare the food in time to be able to cook it. Do you feel like looking back, you could have, uh, this this is going to sound like it's for my other intended podcast that I will make about fitness at some point, but do you feel like looking back on your uh, prior to retiring, your work life, that you could have made time that you could have adopted different strategies to make healthier life decisions just by whatever changing priorities or sacrificing something here or there. I probably could have, as it was, I left the house at quarter to six in the morning and I got back going by bus and I got back home in the evening. So if I wanted to try and make a healthy dinner, what I would do is spend many weekends preparing soups and food and stews and sauces so that I could have them in the freezer, take them out that morning or the night before, and therefore be that much more ready to go. But it still takes the time and the energy to make sure that that aspect is done. So yes, we were trying to take a a healthy look, but we still had a lot more mm, foods that we probably, well, that we've been avoiding for the past year and a half. (laughs) So in our in our first conversation, when you started, you said you got on the bus at about 5.10 in the morning. I got up at 5.10. I was on the bus by quarter to six. You said your daily conversations typically started on the bus. Absolutely. When you had said that, I felt like such an intense spark of excitement. And I recognize that you mentioned it was conversation with other people from your building that you started talking to, right? Sometimes it would be from from my building or from which I might recognize. And sometimes it was actually just people that I recognized because I saw them every day on the bus. So they got comfortable seeing my face. I started conversations with them. And by the end of a couple of years, we were having full, full conversations for an hour and a half each way coming back and forth. That is, I can't even begin to explain how amazing that is to me. And that's because my original concept it started with me talking to someone in college about people on buses because it was my first time living in Toronto and I was a small town kid. And so get to Toronto and we got to go places and in small towns, it's, Hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? Nice weather, yada, yada. And so I would get onto these buses in <laughs> Toronto and I'd be sitting there and we're in this little room. Blinders. Yeah. Every, exactly. You got it. Everyone's got blinders on. Everyone's got their headphones oh, in. Right. And there, it was so interesting to me because I would look at it objectively as I try to with many things. And I would just think we're sitting in this little room. Mm-hmm. The room is moving. We're all sitting in a small room and we's talking to anyone. And I think about, I don't know if it was Bill Nye, the science guy, or someone said, everyone you meet knows something that you don't. And 
I'm just being a person that wants to learn and likes to talk and likes to communicate and share ideas. I was just going, why does nobody talk? And if you try and to someone in Toronto, they'll be like, what do you, are you, do you want something? Don't hurt me. That kind of reaction, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was discussing to classmates at the time that when you get on a bus, you, you should feel like you're almost deafened by chatter. You should get on a bus and just, there should just be conversations going throughout the entire bus. And of course, my classmate was like, that's stupid. Nobody wants to hear your problems. Nobody wants to hear your story. That's craziness. How would you explain the reason why people are not having more conversations in situations like this? I think they are afraid, afraid of looking stupid. That's usually the reason that most of us are afraid when, when we go to speak at all, is we're afraid to look bad. I know that for myself, when I get on the bus, and the bus is a great example. Yes, I lived in Toronto for eight years and hated it because of the same reasoning. <laughs> I get on the bus and I kind of try to look for people that are actually making eye contact. There's many people that'll be on the bus and they don't want to talk to anybody, especially in the morning. I can appreciate that. They have these yet. So they just pull out a book and whether they're reading or not or falling asleep, they will just don't make eye contact with anybody and I'll be fine. But I look around and there's lots of people and the way that their eyes look at you, it's like, I would love to talk to somebody. Come sit with me. <laughs> and so I, I tended to look for those kind of people to be able to say, okay, I've got a book to read if I need to, but I would not mind at all having a conversation with someone and finding out something new. And yes, I did find out many things new that I didn't know about beforehand because of those kind of conversations. That's amazing. And kind of tie in a couple of the things that you've been saying. So before you had mentioned that everyone should learn a little bit about every little thing, right? And with what we're talking about right now with this bus, I used to discuss this with people and they were like, that's crazy. Don't talk to people in the bus. Leave me alone. I want to talk to you or whatever. I would say it's entirely possible that you could go sit on a bus and talk to a guy that's a helicopter mechanic and he starts talking about his work and how he struggled to fix a specific thing and he could only find the right tool to do so from a company in Germany or something and he names that company or whatever and then a week later you run into someone who has the exact same problem that you heard from the helicopter mechanic it's entirely possible and they go, I have no idea what I'm going to do. And you might go, oh, I have fragments of this name of this company. And you help communicate them through it and help them solve that issue. It's entirely possible. Yeah, absolutely. And that has happened. I, I don't remember the exact details, but absolutely has happened of having conversations and being able to come home and listening to a conversation with the husband. And he said, I have this issue. It's like, oh, oh, I learned about that today. <laughs> it's interesting when you said, fear. That was your initial response to why people don't talk. I have thought quite often, and because you said specifically fear of looking silly or feeling stupid or whatever it is, I have personally thought that many people may not want to aggravate someone unnecessarily. They might have a conflict. They might, uh, opposite end of the spectrum, they might befriend someone 
that they didn't want to be friend, right? Where you run into these people that are uh, not balanced well in their life and then you befriend them and then they start to go into kind of a crazier, more obsessed direction where they want to follow you or talk to you all the time or whatever it is because you've given them a friend. And that that has probably been my biggest personal hurdle to that concept because there are people that exist that if you extend the olive branch or whatever you want to say and offer a listening ear compassion or be a friend for a moment that they will start causing some sort of negative impact on your life because whether or not they can register that and my question is what do you think about that variable what would be your opinion on that perspective if anyone was highly concerned about that when going to start conversations with people a you don't give your full name or your address away good <laughs> i mean sure you could give your first name because that's just being polite but you don't have to give your phone number and your email address to anyone when you're you're talking to them but when i think about having a conversation with someone who hmm, might be conceived or considered a little out in far left or far right, think of what you're doing. You're actually occupying that person. So the rest of the members of the bus don't. <laughs> I love that. And so they may feel very comfortable to be able to chat with you because nobody else wants to talk to them. And they've got ideas. They've got things that they would love to share. And if you're willing to be a listening ear for them, fantastic. Right. And, and that, that plays into something that I have discussed with many people around this topic which is when you discuss uh, the idea that some people are not in a good place cognitively or on the same wavelength as you or capable in a way that you would want to make acquaintance with them or whatever. There's the idea that there are some people that very well may be in a place where they're on their way home to end everyone's life and my own, and that's just going to happen. That's my choice now. I have always felt that you may just run into that person on that day and say, hey, how's it going? And giving them, at least in my opinion, giving them that ear, giving that them that human connection, what we talked about, that existence factor, right? Making them feel like they exist might just be enough to prevent that. Would you say that that is something you agree with? Why or why not? Oh, absolutely. I agree with it, Trevor. Because if you think about most people, I would think that are ready to not only take their life, but make sure that their family is taken care of, literally, that they are at their wits end, that you've been communicating with them, that they haven't been talking to them, and that they can't figure it a way out. So being, if you're there chatting with them, giving them an open ear, being open-minded, it can make all the difference in the world. I had one opportunity going back to Toastmasters where I was in a different city in the States, actually, giving a short presentation. And it was one that I was trying to inspire the audience to do something positive. And when I got home a few weeks later, I got a letter from one of the individuals from that conference and they had said that they really appreciated my words. It made such a difference. They were planning to commit suicide that night and they have now 
changed their mind totally and it turned their life around. That's amazing. Huge impact. <laughs> Huge. Because just I honestly surprised because I didn't realize how much impact we have with our words and our thoughts in that way. So to be able to be a good listener, to be able to not only communicate your thoughts, but listen to other people's thoughts and help encourage them can make a big difference, not only in your life, but obviously in theirs. I agree with that entirely. And that is probably something that a lot more people need to consider and not take for granted is the effect that you can have on other people's lives with your thoughts and your words. What is a concept that through communication, you felt like you were beating into people's heads, but they were there were always people that just failed to get it? Ah, concepts beating into people's heads. Hmm. <laughs> the one that comes to mind, and this is in the last six years of, of my doing the management aspect of it, and that is when you're there, be present. By means, you know, put your cell phones away, put your personal emails away that you might have up on the other screen and participate with your whole self. If you're having a conversation, you know, turn the, the monitor away from you so that you can actually see the person that you're speaking with and actually be in the moment with the person and in that conversation. One of the biggest things that I saw, and it has nothing to do with age or any specific generation, because I saw people that were my own age that had their cell phones out constantly or that had their emails up and they'd be in mid-sentence and still reading the emails that were coming through. And it's like, yada, 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 yada. Oh, hold on. I got to answer this. And I thought, are you hearing anything that I'm actually saying to you? And that is probably the one idea that, you know, over the years we've tried. But when you're, you know, when you're talking to perhaps your boss's boss, you don't have as much influence as you do to perhaps your subordinates. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I could definitely see that. I love that you said that because that is something that I have felt very passionately about in my life. The secret life of pronouns. I don't know if you've ever read that. This psychologist essentially discussing pronouns in our language, how we use them and how you can pull out the pronouns and the patterns and the pronouns. And you can figure out who is the dominant one in the conversation. You can figure out whether or not that person was paying attention to the actual material, et cetera, et cetera. The one thing that is what you're talking about here is that he did a test where he had phone conversations with his students and he was just sitting there in a room, staring at a wall, talking to his student on the phone. And in the other scenario, he was doing work on his computer while he was talking to them on the phone. And he could tell that he did not retain nearly as much of the conversation. He did not give good feedback. His, there were short responses, not connected, not paying attention. And psychologically, it's been proven that we can't multitask. We don't have that function as humans. We can single task and flip flop back between the two. And so I personally do not have a conversation with someone when they're on their phone. As soon as someone looks at their phone screen, I just stop talking and I wait. It's not the responsibility of them to continue listening to what I have to say. If, if they want to give me their attention and I get to keep that for the whole moment of the conversation, 
then that's a privilege that I have. And they're generously giving that to me, right? But if they decide to cut their attention off and put it on the phone and stop listening to me, that's their right. And I can't get upset about that. It's a little bit offensive, but that's fine. Go ahead and do that. But that doesn't mean I'm going to continue trying to share my thoughts that you're not paying attention to. And I'll have time and time again with my mother does it all the time where she'll start getting on her phone and she'll always say, oh, I'm just, just, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You're not paying attention to what I'm saying. And so it's just this idea that as we've been discussing, thoughts are very complicated. Communication's really hard. Communication is super ineffective at sharing thoughts. And so to not be giving full attention is ridiculousness. Are you going to receive something when you're not paying full attention to it. Uh, and so do you feel like there are any strategies with that? So you're, you're telling people to be more attentive in the moment. Is there any kind of thing you would suggest that is how they can know if they're not being attentive enough in their life? I think that one of the things that I have seen done, and I tend to do it as well, and that is no phones on the, the dinner table yep. you know, mm -hmm. or, or in the kitchen. Like leave the phones outside because if they buzz, I don't want you jumping up to see what it is, <laughs> right? Just like back in the day when, when we were younger, if somebody called during dinner, oh my gosh, it was like, what's going on? Is there an emergency that you must call during dinner time? And now, of course, it's just people call whenever they have the thought or they text or they email. And those can always wait until the meal is done. Agreed. The other thing that we learned to do years ago was we turned the ringer off for the phone in the bedroom because I want a good night's sleep. And I'm sorry that if during the night... They'll still be gone in the morning. I'm sorry, but it's not going to help me get a flight out any sooner. And that has happened where you know, the, the light was blinking to say, hey, you've got a message. And it's uh, OK, here it goes. And of course, as your parents get older, that becomes more of a possibility. But I think just you know, having some sort of set rules for yourself, even if it's you living by yourself, is to not bring that phone to the table or to turn off any noise at night so that you enjoy your meals, you enjoy your sleep, that the phone is a tool. And we have to remember, it's a tool. <laughs> if somebody really, really needs to talk to you, they will call you. <laughs> they won't text you, they will call you. But I think that's the big thing is that so many, I've seen so many people, oh my gosh, walking down the street and they will have their, their telephone, their cell phone, excuse me, in one hand, and they will have the dog leashes wrapped around in the other. And God forbid them try and put that phone in their pocket. They're not using it, but they can't put it down. It's glued to their hand almost. And I would love to see them just put it in your pocket. It's not ringing or buzzing right now. You're not needing to talk to anyone. It's safe in your pocket to zip it up and actually be there with the people that you're with or the animals that you're taking for a walk. So when communicating with clients over the years, I've adapted different phrases, figures of speech, analogies, and metaphor to make my communication more efficient. So I would be teaching someone the squat and then teach another person and another person and another person. I would have a certain set of 
phrases and words that I would use to teach them that. And then I'd run into someone that those words and phrases just didn't work for some reason. And so I'd have to come up with new ones. What is an example of a certain choice of words that you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your career? Oh, goodness. Choice of words. The language has changed so much in the 40 years that I was in IT. Even though I was using the same programming language, the external language of English and business had changed quite a lot. Um, early on, I think more collaboration and teamwork. Those, were, those are two words that are much more prevalent in today's language, but 40 years ago, you didn't really hear too much of them. I mean, they may have been done, but you just didn't hear them actually being said. Okay. So kind of in a similar idea as talking about talking, where no one really talks about talking, that you found that people didn't address the existence of collaboration and teamwork in the workplace enough. Okay. What do you think it would have changed if people had done that more? I think that had people been more conscious of the idea of teamwork and the idea of collaboration that the teams within the business would have worked better together and they would have worked better with other departments as opposed to me saying, okay, we need to get this information from this IT department and they didn't talk. Like there wasn't a lot of communication back and forth in those days. So you didn't know how to approach them. Whereas now, I mean, there's meetings where there's at least one representative of each group at a meeting once a month just to discuss ideas and direction that the company is going. That would have been better 40 years ago and going forward than more so than just now. What is something about the CRA and how it operates or taxes or benefits or something like that, that you wish more people understood? I think that there's a lot of people that don't understand that CRA is a service and that almost every employee there is trying to help you as a Canadian citizen to try and make what you do best way we can. Uh, not everyone, well, in IT, we don't know the rules for the tax returns necessarily. I mean, we program what we're for the returns, but if we, we don't know if you can you know, take that pen and write it off as a business expense, because that's going to be very specific. And of course, as a CRA employee, we're not allowed to actually talk to anyone outside our own personal family about their own taxes <laughs> and give advice. So the idea is that I, what I have seen is, is government employees, we often hear, oh, government, they, they don't work as hard as anybody else. And you know they, they're lazy. It's like out of all the people that I have seen and worked with, they are hard workers. They try to do the best they can. They put in the overtime needed and many times don't even get paid for it, you know, because they are trying to make sure that the jobs that they have assigned to them get done and get gets out to the taxpayer and taxpayer can utilize these, these systems so that they make their life easier. I can't even begin to explain how many people that I have a conversation with about anything related to taxes or government. And it seems like nobody has anything good to say about 
CRA. So the perspective of knowing that it's a service and they want to be there for you is definitely very helpful. Uh, in your thank you speech that you had sent me, uh, you mentioned accepting a compliment is something that many people struggle with. How would you best coach someone who struggles to accept a compliment? One of the things I remember from the movie Pretty Woman was the statement when she said, it's easier to believe the bad stuff. And there's a lot of good stuff about any individual, whether that individual is living on the street or living in Parliament Hill. There's a lot of good in every person. And to be able to give a compliment and accept the compliment for some people can be really hard because they don't want to believe that someone sees the good in them whether it's the color that they're wearing or the fact that you know, they notice that they've lost three pounds and look fabulous again today, or the, the, the shape of their hair that they've just got done at, at your, your partner's hair salon, perhaps. To be able to accept a compliment is simply shutting up, not saying, oh, not this old thing, or no, it, it cost me a fortune to get this done. It's to say, thank you. And that's it. That's all you have to say. Because when we start negating those compliments, then the person giving them is saying, well, why should I say anything nice to you or to anybody if this is what I'm going to get? So we have to think about not only yourself, but the person giving the compliment. Yep, absolutely. And I personally used to really struggle with accepting compliments. And I think what helped me most with it, because I, I couldn't get my head around thank you. For some reason, it was, it just felt like a block because if someone handed me a thing or here's some food or a gift or whatever, I could say thank you because they gave me a thing and I'm, it's got value to it. But when they gave me the compliment in my own mind, I couldn't, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. I would brush it off or whatever it was. What really helped me was learning to make statements like that's very kind of you to say. And I appreciate your kind words because I found for myself that it wasn't necessarily that I was thanking them for the compliment or anything like that. I was thanking them for the gesture because I recognized that the gesture had value and it was very kind and it was very nice of them. And over time that has taught me how to truly accept in my own mind compliments and allow them to be something that feels like it has value like a gift does when I receive it. Uh, when it comes to accepting compliments and what does it add to your relationships that would otherwise be missing? I think that it's telling you mentally that someone appreciates something about you, whether it is the work that you've done perhaps to tone your body a bit or the fact that you've got good fashion sense to pick out the right color clothes for yourself or the fact that you were able to communicate what kind of hairstyle you wanted at, at your partner's hair salon again. <laughs> the idea is that someone is telling you you've made good judgment somewhere. And I think that's something that we can keep in mind, that when someone's giving you a compliment, think about it that way. You've made a good judgment. Knock that up. But how can you do it again? <laughs> Time is indisputably the most valuable resource each human has available. How do you best respect that regarding conversation? I think that when it comes to conversation and the word conversation is a two-way 
conversation. If you are at work and you're coming into someone's space, you have to find out, do they have time for this conversation? And that you can usually read in someone's eyes or their face. If they are head down typing away, you walk in, they ignore you. No, they don't have time for this conversation right now. <laughs> if they are, they see you, they stop, they lean back and they present themselves to you to be able to say, I'm here. What's up? They usually have at least a minute or two to discuss whatever it is that you want to discuss. So it's really taking a look at how the person is to say whether or not they're open for a conversation. And, and again, that's where you're going to be taking a look at and how much time do we have? Because you don't want to use up that person's break time on a conversation that they weren't planning on having. <laughs> what would you suggest for people that have the problem that they have people in their lives that are either recurring or every so often where they're trying to give off what you're explaining as blatant signs that they don't have time for a conversation. You meet the people that just want to talk and talk and talk. How do you suggest best dealing with those situations? A lot of times I think it's communicating your desire by means to be able to say, okay, I've got one minute or two minutes to be able to have a conversation. And then I have to get back to this report and, and literally have a, a stopwatch. If you give free reign and then realize, whoa, we've been chatting for 15 minutes. I got to get back to be able to say, I love the conversation. Perhaps we could take this and discuss more after work or at a different time and location, but I have to get back to the whatever work that you're doing. Using words and explaining these things can be very difficult and slow and tedious. What is something that everyone could put a little bit of effort into so that conversation could become even just slightly easier, whether that is enunciation or the way they describe things or the way they maneuver their conversation. What do you think could be done by most people? Wow. That's huge. <laughs> There's a whole lot there going on. Yes, there is. Let's, let's look at it this way. The 0.5 analogy. How do you think people could go about the act of conversing to more quickly get someone 2.5? Um, okay. One way of doing that is to be able to see if the person that you're speaking with, whether it's one or several, understands each step of the way so that you don't have to go into detail with them on each step. To be, I know that within presentations, we're often saying, okay, so if I ask everyone here, who has, who has knowledge of this aspect? And we'll get a show of hands. Okay, that means I don't have to explain anything because everyone has their hand up. So then we can move to point two. And we can do that at each, each point along the way. But if there is someone or if the person that you're talking one-on-one -on -one with does not have knowledge or does not understand a certain point, that's when you really have to go into some detail to make sure that they have a, an understanding of that basis that you want to build and continue building the conversation from. So it's basically asking them, do you understand this concept? Uh, perhaps asking them to paraphrase what the concept is about to them, but getting them to participate in the, the actual conversation. And I, I want to kind of double dip on that last point you made there that is getting them to paraphrase. Because I have personally found many times where I'll be having some sort of conversation with someone somewhere and 
going, do you understand or do you know, or do you know what I mean by, and they say yes, and then you move on. And then later on you hit point four and you're explaining something and they go, wait a minute. You could just see by the look on their face that they didn't really know what you meant. And so you kind of got to backtrack with what you're talking about to kind of use another one of the analogies to further describe that the the pinpoint to dinner plate right it's almost as if you take a dinner plate thought and you say does everyone get this and then people go yeah and then you go down to a hockey puck and you go okay does everyone get this and they go yeah and you go down to a coin and you can get more and more precise to the thought as you go referring to the egg game for morality where you're taking you're discussing something moral and you're colliding your eggs together to see whose is tougher, right? To try and convince the other person. Do you feel like you are the kind of person that is regularly looking for your own egg to be broken? I think I have a fairly good balance most of the time. There are times when I might try to break other people's eggs <laughs> because I think that maybe their uh, their thoughts are a little too old-fashioned or not thought of in today's world. A perfect example of that is my stepdad, where uh, I quite enjoyed riling him up by telling him that I thought that same-sex marriage was a great thing. And he, of course, would fly off the seat and scream and shout. And I actually quite enjoyed that because I thought it was funny as hell. (laughs) Bad of me, I know. But it... It, it showed me that even though he thought himself as, you know, this great moral person, that some of his prejudices were still there. And, you know, in today's world, things change, but he wasn't ready to change with them. And, and so you basically felt like as you were talking to him about this topic, that he was just dead set on his egg. There was no way you were breaking it, but you had fun batting it around anyways. I, I tried. You know, I tried to, to get him to soften it up a little bit. But so you never did make any ground on that? We tried. Um, I think that we got him to the point where he didn't scream and shout anymore <laughs> about it, but he was still dead set against it, unfortunately. Can you recall a moment in your life where you know that you convince the other person? I think the big one that I can think about there where the egg was definitely broken was talking sex to our son. Where he was a a young teenager, he had, you know, ideas going on his head of how he was going to be this great, uh, I don't know the word I want for that. Player? Yeah, yeah, we'll go with player. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll keep it. PC, we'll stick with player. And I could, I could remember sitting down on the couch, making sure that there were no distractions and having an honest heart-to-heart discussion, conversation with him to be able to find out what he thought and to have a, a completely honest conversation where I opened myself up to whatever questions he had for me. What do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind when you're sh- sitting there colliding morals with another person and trying to decide whose is the right moral? I think that being open-minded and listening to the other person, especially if you're, you're talking to someone who is raised differently than you, 
that is from a different religion, a different country, different background, that they are going to have different ideas than what you perhaps grew up being taught. And so listening to them, you have to be open and not judge them by your own moral code or your own values, because that's not the way that they were raised. I have one friend who lives in the Middle East. He's got, I believe it's five wives. Oh, wow. I think he just had his 27th child. Oh, my. And by my moral compass, that's just wrong. It's against the rules. One one couple is one is two people. That's it. But there, and in his culture, he's got the money to raise them. He's got the money to keep everybody happy. It's perfectly fine for him. So am I judging him by my morals and my values or by his own? And I think that's the big difference is that if he does something wrong by his own morals and values, then that's what I should be judging him against as opposed to mine. Yes. Yep. That is such an excellent point. And I feel like that can just branch off into so many different directions because that perspective that you just gave is such an excellent way to explain that where they aren't necessarily operating on your morals just because you perceive them as someone who's acting in a way that is less than awesome in your opinion doesn't mean that they're purposefully acting in a way that is less than awesome in their opinion with this man who has many, many wives, and you are in a monogamous relationship, married for 40 years, it is safe to say that over time, your personality Venn diagrams have been able to merge. Between my husband and I? Very much so. (laughs) Are they continuing to change shape? Oh, absolutely. Because each of us has different hobbies or things that we like. So the idea, I've recently got him into Toastmasters. It only took me 27 years to do that. But he's now enjoying the benefits of that program. But he also loves electronics, which has no communication except with the machine itself. But he's what he's done with that is he's created a group within Ottawa that they bunch of folks get together and they discuss ideas. They discuss problems that they're each having and then they will talk about it and see what can be done. And the great thing about that idea is that I can talk to him about you know, leading that group from the Toastmasters, but I don't participate in that group. So he enjoys that aspect by himself with other friends. I enjoy sewing. I'm, and that's something that I've done since I was a teenager. And so that's something that he has nothing to do with. <laughs> right? So we, we all have our personal hobbies, but we have joint hobbies as well. And that's what helps keep a relationship going well. I want to, we're going to address the sewing thing in a minute. But while we are on the topic of the uh, personality Venn diagrams, do you find the rate of them shifting has slowed or changed over time at all? I think that they've probably slowed as we've gotten older. I think that when we're younger, there's so many different things that we're happy. There's 
it's basically you're just starting to, to meld into that Venn, Venn diagram. And as you have children, then it becomes another circle that you've all shared together. That's very good. There's a lot of things that go on there. And then as the child moves out and leaves home, then we have to take a look at what were the things we were sharing before that third pod came in. <laughs> And that's why I've, I've heard of many couples that when the kids leave, they've got nothing left because they were sharing it, that, that Venn diagram, they were not sharing it between themselves. They were only sharing it with the children. And so when the kids leave, they've got nothing left. That is so interesting. And that is, I feel like that's such an excellent way of explaining that, how they have these overlaps as a couple. And then when they have kids they might fade away from those places and lose those overlap connections because they have to overlap with the child to raise it properly. And then when the child leaves the nest, they're overlapped on all of these fundamentals about raising children, but they don't have to do that anymore. And then all of their couple related things are missing. That is so interesting. Do you find that although, so you mentioned that the changes have slowed a bit, and that would just make sense because you, over time you just get closer and closer to the same shape. Do you find that although changes now are still happening and they might be minor on the scale of life, do you find that they're any more or less difficult? They're easier. Sometimes they are just as difficult as they were you know, in the beginning. Uh, one of the things that, because both of us recently retired, is that we had to figure out what we were doing. What was our days going to look like? I'm fortunate enough to be a morning person, and he is not. <laughs> so it meant that I wake up usually between seven, eight o'clock, which is great because you know waking up a quarter after five, I'm done with. It was, it was good and handy, but I'm done with. So I have hours, and I'm lucky if he gets up by 11, 12 o'clock. <laughs> in the day. But that gives me four hours of doing whatever I want to do without making too much noise and waking them up. And then a good solid afternoon and evening. So we'll have lunch together. We make sure we have dinner together. We'll go for walks outside together, even in the minus 18 degrees Celsius that we've had through this past winter. We sometimes will play cards together. And in the evening, we do a little bit, but I go to bed early because I'm going to bed early and he stays up and he has his time to do whatever it is he needs to do or wants to do. But we make sure that we spend some quality time together, not just for meals, but to have time that we can actually have a conversation. And that could be while we're walking or playing cards or you know, just sitting and relaxing in front of the TV for a little bit. Would you say on the whole of the concept we're currently discussing, the the process of the overlap of personalities, do you feel like that is important for a successful relationship or not necessary? And I want to, I want to kind of pinpoint this for a second. Opposites attract and they'll say things like, oh, you don't have to agree on everything, yada, yada. And I personally don't agree with that at all, but I want to know your opinion and perspective on that. It's an excellent idea. If you agreed on everything, life might be pretty boring. But I think you need to agree on the major issues. You know, having conversations with the people that you are going to marry, if you're intending to have children, talk about how are you going to raise your children? 
What's the basic ideas? So that both of you are in agreement. One of the things I remember hearing was the best way of raising children is first get a dog and find out how each of you are with discipline because you don't, a lot of people don't know what they'll do until it happens. And so if you can raise a dog, another animal that needs discipline, like, you know, cats, they don't play with discipline anyway, because they remember when we worship them as gods. <laughs> but something like a puppy, of learning how to paper train a puppy, learning how to bring them out into the yard to do their business, cleaning up after the dog, all over the house, cleaning up after the dog. It gets you used to the idea of, you're going to have to go through this in more depth with children. Can you do it? Do you agree on the methods? So that's just one aspect. Uh, I know of people that have gotten married that are of different faiths. Well, it depends. Are you wanting to have children and which faith are you going to be raising them as? Or are you going to leave it until they're an adult and figure it out for themselves? That's one idea. People that different methods of eating. I'm, I'm not going to go with the no spice spice because you can do that later on in the cooking, but someone who is vegan and someone who's a carnivore are not going to have a happy marriage or a happy relationship because the, 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 the vegan is always going to be smelling the, the meat on that, that their partner's breath and they're not going to like that. <laughs> So there's got to be some beliefs that are the same for the individual, for the couples. And if you've got those sameness enough, then you have a good chance of it working. But no matter what, you still have to work at it. Every, usually every day of your marriage, you have to work at it. It's not going to just happen and you're going to live forever and you know be celebrating 50 years without having to do a thing. What are the fundamental concepts that you or your husband found understanding on early on that helped you get to 40 years? I think honestly, the big thing for us is you never go to bed angry. If you've got a problem, work it out. Even if it means staying up late and you know, not getting enough sleep that night, work it out. Because that way, by morning, it'll be done and it'll be resolved and you won't have to worry about it. Because otherwise, you're both going to have restless night sleep. You're going to, you know, not going to sleep well. And we know that sleep is essential for your mental and physical health. Absolutely. I could go on and on about that. To this point, uh, I have found that personally that these visuals and these analogies that I shared with you in our first visit have been greatly beneficial to my life and relationships. Uh, and I mean that they've given me an opportunity to build my relationships on very, very sturdy foundation. And I'll, I've been able to use them as tools to communicate things very clearly and had my partner and other relationships communicate back to me. Are there any particular conversations, ideas, topics that you have had that you find after having them make for a much better or easier relationship? The one that comes to mind for this, Trevor, is finances. Because finances is probably the biggest problem with any family, any couple. And that's usually what the, the number one argument in a a couple will be is talking about finances and having, you know, basically setting up the rules well in advance so that, you know, you've got the, 
money coming in. You've got the bills that need to be paid that are for the house. Then you've got what it is that you perhaps bought, what it is I bought. Those purchases, you're going to have purchases for your own hobbies. Do you have some sort of budget that you have for the annual budget for uh, your hobby so that you, you shouldn't spend more than, say, $500 on, some, on anything for the year? But then you've got things that are for the house. And, oh, the TV has just broken down. You need to get a new TV. But how much is it going to cost? And so for anything that is over, say, $500 should always be discussed before purchasing. And that means after tax, not before tax. <laughs> but you have to set up the rules. Whatever it is that you and your partner or even roommates are comfortable with, that's what needs to be set up in I believe, ahead of time. So that just like playing a game of cards, the rules are known in advance. So when it comes to the problem, it's like, okay, here's the problem. This is what we need to do in my view. Does it work through the rules that we already set up? Yes, then let's go for it. No, then let's discuss it. By rules, you mean like the very specific things of how much money are we spending in this category when we're spending in this category, when do we need to discuss it? When can we just do it without discussing it, et cetera, et cetera, like breaking down every little point and possibility because it is math. But I know of some couples that they take their money and if, if the husband buys $20 worth of something, then the wife will go out and spend $20 on whatever just to make sure that they've got equal amount. And that can be really damaging to a marriage rather than being very supportive. Just kind of off the cuff, how important do you believe it is to develop your vocabulary? I know that for myself, one of the tests that we had at work had to do vocabulary. And they actually gave us I think 20 words that most of us never use in a lifetime. And we had to determine what it meant. Now, what was for me a benefit was that in going back to Toastmasters for a minute, we actually do a word of the day where we introduce a word that we don't necessarily use every day. And we talk about the definition and where does it come from? And, you, and we try and encourage everyone to use it in a sentence during the meeting. And in this case, when I had this test at work, I actually recognized more than half of the words just through my Toastmaster meetings, which helped me pass the test. <laughs> and it was for a promotion. So yay. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. So do you have any words in particular that became immensely useful to your life? I think there's probably been several words. Today's word was perception. And I think it's a, a fabulous word. It's a word that I probably don't use as often as I should. And sometimes as we get older, we forget the words that we really want to use. <laughs> learning new vocabulary, learning new proper English words is immense, I think, very helpful. And how would you describe the way that learning vocabulary is helpful? What, what kind of value does that provide to somebody's life? I think that no matter what your mother tongue is, to be able to have that continuous learning so that whether it's a new word in English or a new word in any language, it's going to help you learn and grow as an individual so that you become more comfortable, not only with the language that you're using, but with other languages that you might hear. 
you mentioned being a seamstress. Yes. And Bird told me that you sew costumes <laughs> I do, yes. for these SCA events. That's right. What does that stand for again? Society for, of Creative Anachronism. Yes. Yes. And so can you describe these costumes to me? I, yes, I can. <laughs> There are, there are many different levels of costumes that I make, and I make them a lot for myself and for my husband. I have, within the organization, you can choose your own persona. So you can decide what you're going to be, what country you're going to be from, what century you're going to be from. And so each country, of course, each century has different styles of clothing that they would have worn. And of course we do the research and figure out what they would have looked like, how they were sewn, how they were put together and recreate those with the natural fibered fabrics that we have available with to us today. Historical recreations, right? Like, it, it, but they are, I mean, the, uh, like there's events, right? So for my, we do have local events. We do have the events all over the world that you can get dressed up and participate in, but they are not reenactment. A, that's the word I'm looking they're, for. They're, they're not a reenactment. It's not like right. the civil war reenactment. Right. We actually will have fencers and fighters and we will have arts and sciences displays of, created and they will be uh, judged and awarded by different different peers the idea is that we learn how things were done and we can recreate many of the aspects of it as long as we keep the disease and the dirt out of it most of us are pretty happy have you heard of larping yes okay live action role play right how, when it comes to LARPing and historical recreations and Renaissance fairs, how does this differentiate from those things? What makes this different? This is from my perspective of, and, and everything that I've read and heard. Uh, the LARPing is going along with the game that they're playing. And so they are dressing up in not necessarily... Uh, authentic or historical, uh, historically accurate. The the Ren Faire, they are, I understand, fairly close to being historically accurate, but they are a little bit uh, more modern <laughs> than the SCA. So where the SCA ends, I think, is where the Ren Fairs kind of start taking off. So for myself, I do, uh, my basic costuming is 10th century Viking, I've got some 12th century Norman, 14th century Italian Renaissance, and 15th century Persian. Okay, well, if I ever want a Viking costume, I know who to go to. Oh, the Viking costume is super comfortable to wear. I use that for all of my camping that I do with the SCA. And when you camp with the SCA, what are those camping excursions like? Well, we go for two weeks in the beginning of August when it's 100 degrees Fahrenheit every day. And you're wearing about five layers of clothing. <laughs> Drink lots of water. We have, uh, many of us have canvas tents and we try to set up our tent and our camping area such that it you feel like you've walked into the 15th century. So the idea is you walk into my tent and it, actually, if you looked at my Facebook uh, banner, that's actually my tent that I'm showing at my campsite. But you walk into my tent and it's a lovely 15 by 15 canvas marquee. I've got ground cloth 
than rugs on the floor, Ikea style beds with full bedspreads on and everything. We've got shelving on the walls. We've got tables and chairs inside to be able to sit and do what we need to do. We've got lovely candles and candle holders and things sp spread throughout our, our small campsite. But what's great is that we've got five people in my small group that we camp together each year. But people come from all over the world to come to this camp uh, excursion or event for two weeks. So we turn a campground that normally holds about 400 campsites into a small town of 12,000 people for two weeks each year. Wow. We have our own medical service, our own ambulances, our own university, our own mayor, our own police force, our newslet newspaper, uh, ice delivery service. And we put millions of dollars into the local economy there. But it's not like the emergency services are operating like they would in that time. Mm, probably more modern. Okay. Because we've got an actual doctor and EMS and we've over the years purchased our own ambulances. Oh my God. And then lend them out to the local county during the time that we're not there. Obviously, you don't want to just go, ah, we're not going to use penicillin. It oh, doesn't... no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rusty yeah. nails. Yeah. Bare feet. Modern medicine is probably helpful. Absolutely. We're coming to the end here. And so I just like to touch on a couple things that I wanted to make sure we got to before we ended. If you can answer these quickly, I'm not sure, but I am told that you are the person that knows everything about everyone. <laughs> that is something that I have struggled with personally is keeping in touch with family enough. And it's not that I don't like talking to family. I'm just it, I'll catch up with them at Christmas and different events like that and whatever. So the act of contacting family members, is that something that has just felt so natural and intuitive to you that you've just gone and done it? You did and you were just the day goes by and so time comes up and you go, oh, I'm going to call so and so. Or was it, has it been something that you have had to put very conscious effort into and maybe scheduled or set aside time or purposefully planned or thought out who you're going to contact and when? A little bit of both, honestly. Uh, I knew that my mom was the eldest of her family, and so she was usually in charge of... And so being the only daughter, I knew that I would take over that role when the time came. At least I assumed I would because... My brothers weren't that great at remembering to do things, you know, like calling me three days after my birthday and say, hey, was your birthday? Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, so the idea was that I kind of knew I would be doing something like organizing the annual Christmas get-together. So when it comes to trying to make sure that I contact, you know, stay in contact with my family, it's something that I do both consciously and unconsciously. I mean, I would love to talk to them every day if I had the time to be able to do that and if they had the time. But as it is, when I call, it's usually spending a couple hours on the phone <laughs> and just chit-chatting and making sure that, you know, life is still good. Uh, I, do, I do miss the ability, COVID, to be able to travel and actually see my family face-to-face. -face. I think many people can relate to that. I am, I was told that you with a group of others used to regularly go 
to garage sales. <laughs> I was also told that Gina is the kind of person that could take a 10 cent item and haggle them down to five cents. Oh, that's easy. It's only half price. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and this is particularly interesting to me. I don't know if you've heard about Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary V is this guy that is, you can go Google him after he's all over the internet now, and he's got all kinds of social media, and he's just basically pushing many different strategies for making money. And one of those primary strategies that he talks about so incessantly is flipping and buying something for low and selling it for higher. And he talks about garage sales specifically, and he'll post videos of him going out to garage sales and haggling people down on things and showing how much money he made selling them on eBay or whatever. And so this is actually something that a lot of people have been getting an interest in because he has popularized it. What would you say are particular words or phrases that you try to touch on or use, or maybe some that you try to avoid at a garage sale? I think that you have to understand their emotional attachment to an item. And if they are emotionally attached to something, you're lucky to see it for sale at any price. <laughs> so it's usually that they're not going to lower that price. If they are just wanting to get rid of things, just get it out of the house, a lot of times they are willing to drop their prices much lower than the listing price. One of the rules, and I'll call it a rule, that I remember from being a very young yard sailor was that whatever the price listed, you could offer up to half price, but never below half of that because that's just insulting them. So make sure that whatever the price that's listed, don't go below half because they don't think they you at all. That sounds like very, very good place to start. What would be a good question to ask to learn more about whether or not they have an emotional attachment to the item? Basically to ask them, uh, I wouldn't be asking, you know, do you have an emotional attachment? No, that's a little too direct. <laughs> that's a little too straightforward, but perhaps how long have you had it? Uh, did you get it from somebody special? What did you use it for? Oh, it was hidden in the, in the corner under your closet for 20 years? Okay. <laughs> We've got a good start here. Yeah, that's good. Okay. If someone were to start saying thank you more often, how would you expect their lives and the lives of the people around them to be affected by that? I think that they would see a lot more for one that people that are giving, whether it is something tangible or intangible, for them to feel that, that it was appreciated will make that person feel good and in turn will make the person that received it feel even better, knowing that they've just given the person who gave them something feeling good about themselves. What advice, or not necessarily advice, but maybe feedback would you give me about my communication? Hmm. You And to preface this, you cannot hurt my feelings. You can say <laughs> whatever you want. I think that's very calm and relaxed, which I can very much appreciate and like. I think that as you speak, one of the things that I notice is that when you're thinking about a question, you're looking down. I don't know if you have notes over there. Yeah, I'm looking at my notes. It doesn't, it doesn't really feel like you're looking at notes, 
but it feels that you're you're not necessarily uh, paying as much attention through the eye contact as, as though what I would suggest if you were to do this for perhaps the next person is instead of having it on paper no memorize questions I don't go with that no? oh. if you have two monitors have the questions up on the second monitor okay so that way you're, you're just going sideways as opposed to having your whole head go down okay so or even I guess I could maybe even was to be talking to you and looking up is that do you feel like that is better for you can even bring it a little bit closer so that it's closer to your camera okay. that might help as well right so then it was in this position and i was talking to you and i had to dart my eyes up and then back down you feel like that would not as noticeable as putting your whole head down okay and that would create a more consistent connection absolutely absolutely good awesome so there's your growth point for today <laughs> that's good i like that well, this has been fun. Yeah, this has been excellent. Thank you so, so much for your time. I really, truly appreciate it. Uh, is there any questions you have for me about any of this? I'm looking forward to hearing about it when it comes available. So when you're ready, let me know where it is because I have a bunch of Toastmaster friends that are going, oh yeah, we want to see this. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Awesome. I don't know where I'm standing on that. I have been told that when starting a podcast, you should be accumulating 10 episodes before you put any up. So you might not see it right away. And I do have plenty of editing to do my little hiccups here and there. I will definitely, definitely be in touch as soon as it's available. I might even find a way to when I get it edited, if I don't have all of the others in order, I might just send you a copy of it or something like that. That would be awesome. I would love that. Well, thank you so much for your time, Gina. I really, really appreciate it. And I express enough how grateful I am for your time and your thoughts and your effort. You're welcome. It was lovely chatting with you. And I, I do sincerely wish you well on this podcast series. Thank you so much, Gina. Take yeah, care. You too. Bye now. Bye-bye. I am deeply grateful to you for listening to this podcast. Your support means the world to me, and I am committed to continuing to create content that resonates with you. If you would like to help me turn this into a full-time endeavor, I would greatly appreciate it if you could share this podcast with your friends and connect with me on Instagram at Talking About Talking Podcast, Twitter at Talking the Letter A Talking and YouTube talking about talking. Your engagement and support will help make my dream a reality.